Hello everybody and welcome back to our reading and evaluating the Dead Sea Scrolls series. Today we are going to go back into Qumran's commentaries, quote-unquote, on the books of the Bible. Now an interesting thing about this, we've already covered that these people didn't really care what the Bible actually said. They had hobby horses and theology that they wanted the Bible to support. So anytime they read a verse that if you just crossed your eyes hard enough, you could maybe see the message that they wanted, they were all over that like a pirate finding a big old bottle of rum or whatever addict imagery you want to have there. Now, I have thus far been careful to compare what they said the Bible says to what the Bible actually says because they had a nasty habit of sometimes just you know, changing the text to reflect their theology. So if the Bible didn't say what they wanted, they were willing to try to make the Bible say what they wanted. I think at this point, we have sufficiently demonstrated that their manuscripts were severely and sorely lacking. They do not reflect the narrative concerning the Dead Sea Scrolls, that these were some super loyal, faithful believers that just wanted you to have the real Bible. Absolutely not. That's not what they were about. So we're going to do this a little bit faster this time. We're going to go ahead and just go with whatever they say the verse says in the book of the Bible they're doing commentary on. Assume that there are mistakes. Assume that there are word changeouts that they try to sneakily put in there. Just go ahead and assume that. Right now, though, this is called reading and evaluating the Dead Sea Scrolls. We are going to take a look at what the commentaries say and see whether or not they are accurate commentaries or if this is just another instance of them riding their hobby horse off into the sunset. So we start here with their commentaries on Hosea. There's going to be a long period here where we are in the minor prophets. So they go to Hosea chapter 2 verse 8 and they write, She knew not that it was I who gave her the new wine and oil, who lavished upon her silver and gold which they used for Baal. And their commentary says, Interpreted, this means that they ate and were filled, but they forgot God, who, dot, 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 they cast his commandments behind them which he had sent by the hand of his servants, the prophets, and they listened to those who led them astray. They revered them, and in their blindness they feared them as though they were gods. Hmm. No, actually, they just worshipped false gods, Qumran. It's not hard to see that. They used this gold for Baal. Hosea is very direct here. But here they're trying to say, well, no, there's these false teachers that they were worshipping as though they were gods, because during the 1st century BC and 1st century AD, the Qumran community is looking at all of these competing sects of Judaism, and they really want to hammer home the idea that a different denomination of your religion is actually an evil cult that deserves to go to hell. They're saying, oh, the, the problem was the same in Hosea's day. Let's keep reading here. From Hosea chapter 2, verses 9 to 10, their translation, Therefore I will take back my corn in its time, and my wine in its season. I will take away my wool and my flax, lest they cover her nakedness. I will uncover her shame before the eyes of her lovers, and no man shall deliver her from out of my hand. Quote, interpreted, this means that he smote them with hunger and nakedness, that they might be shamed and disgraced in the sight of the nations on which they relied. They will not deliver them from their miseries. 
okay, yeah, okay, that's that's almost right. It's just about accurate. From 2 verse 11 here, I will put an end to her rejoicing, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her festivals. Interpreted, this means that they have rejected the ruling of the law and have followed the festivals of the nations. But their rejoicing shall come to an end and shall be changed into mourning. I will ravage her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, They are my wage, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a thicket, and the wild beasts shall eat them. Chapter 2, verse 12. Ha ha ha. Do you see the sleight of hand here? Hosea says, I will put an end to her rejoicing, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her festivals. Now they said this is, well, they rejected the ruling of the law, and they followed the festivals of the nations. Is that what the verse says? Do Sabbaths come from the nations? Is there any ancient Near Eastern observance even close to the uh, Hebrew observance of the Sabbath that's found in the law? How about the new moons? That's something from the law. That's Numbers chapter 28. A new moon means a new month, and that meant a couple of trumpets had to be blown and an offering had to be made. So here they are following the law. Qumran says, no, 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 that can't be. Why would God condemn something that is in accordance with the Mosaic law that we love and almost worship? Well, the reason is, and here's something they're conveniently ignoring, God doesn't want the Mosaic law being followed if it is not being followed authentically. This is why Isaiah condemns bad Sabbaths, why he condemns bad fasting. Why he says that all these sacrifices are wearying God, even if they are done in accordance with the law. Malachi goes after this too. Qumran doesn't want to hear that, so they're saying, well, it's probably just a Gentile Sabbath or something that they're condemning here and stopping. Duh. <laughs> anyway, we continue on here with the next fragment of their commentaries. Again from Hosea, I think this is chapter 2, verse 13, dot, 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 and your wound shall not be healed. Its interpretation concerns, dot, 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 the furious young lion, dot, dot, dot. Don't have much commentary there. He continues, though, for I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. Uh, chapter 5, verse 14. It was 5, verse 13 and 5, verse 14. Its interpretation concerns the last priest who shall stretch out his hand to strike Ephraim, dot, dot, dot. What? Let's, uh, let's open up our Bibles just real quick here and do a little bit of comparison here. Let's turn to the book of Hosea, the first of the minor prophets and see whether or not it's the case that Hosea is talking about an end times priest that will ravage the northern kingdom of Ephraim. During the time of the Qumran community here, that would have been seen as the Samaritans. So let's read here from Hosea chapter 5, beginning in verse 11. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to go after filth. But I am like a moth to Ephraim, and like dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king. But he is not able to cure you or heal your wound, for I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. And in their distress earnestly seek me. 
if this is a quote-unquote priest, a final priest that's going to lay waste to the northern nation of Ephraim here, northern Israel, why does he demand repentance and worship? And why would he do that 500 years at least after the northern kingdom had approached Assyria for deliverance? That makes zero sense. They are inserting this into the text. And of course they are, because Qumran is obsessed with eschatological victory conditions for themselves. So they really, really, really want to make sure that this verse is about something it's not. So we can verify their dreams of a priestly messiah that helps out the messiah of Judah to kill all their enemies. And I wonder if this meant that there was a division in their minds, like the Messiah ben Judah would be the destroyer of the Gentiles, while the priestly Messiah ben Levi would be the one who destroys all the false believers, race traitors, uh, religious traitors, etc., etc., and so forth. Really makes you think. It's a good speculation. Anyway, we continue on. There's only a couple more little bits here in the Hosea commentaries. I will go and come back to my place until they will feel guilty and seek my face. In their distress, they will seek me eagerly. Chapter 5, verse 15, as we actually read from the Bible. Its interpretation is that God has hidden his face from dot, 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 and they did not listen, dot, dot, dot. Hmm, well, okay. How can you get that interpretation as a consistent interpretation when the first few verses you read, uh, verse 13 and 14, you were saying that that was about a priestly Messiah. Now you're saying this last one, oh, that one applies to God. They're doing a little bit of a switcheroo, so they're, they're not saying, oh man, you got to worship this priestly Messiah. Um, this last verse that has the same voice and same speaker, yeah, that's, um, that's actually God. So yeah, we're still orthodox. And finally, they, like Adam, have broken the covenant, chapter 6, verse 7. It's interpretation, dot, dot, dot. They have forsaken God and walked according to the decrees of the Gentiles, dot, dot, dot. Remember, they are very much about laws. It's not about how they actually worshipped other gods. Because Qumran was okay with worshipping other gods, so long as you said that the God of the Old Testament was like the coolest one. We move on here to their commentary on Micah. Not much here, unfortunately. Now, this is from Micah chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? I will make of Samaria a ruin in the fields and of Jerusalem a plantation of vines. Interpreted, this concerns the spouter of lies who led the simple astray. Now, that's the end of that part of the commentary. If they were orthodox, what they would be talking about is Jeroboam, who set up a temple with golden calves. That, that's what actually happened. That is the transgression of Samaria, the sin of Jeroboam, that the writer of 1 Kings and 2 Kings will not stop talking about at all. But here they're like, um, spouter of lies, spouter of lies. We can't say Jeroboam because maybe we don't want it to be Jeroboam. Maybe we want it to be one of these dark, evil teachers that we hate and hope that he dies when the final priest shows up. Anyway, uh, what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Chapter 1, verse 5. 
they say, interpreted this concerns the teacher of righteousness who expounded the law to his counsel, and to all who freely pledged themselves to join the elect of God to keep the law in the counsel of the community, who shall be saved on the day of judgment. Let's reread what the verse said. In what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Now, somebody with a bit of common sense would say, hmm, high place, place of worship, Oh yeah, it's in Jerusalem. That's where the temple is. That makes sense. That makes sense according to literally any historical evaluation of what the scripture is saying here. And that uh, does fit with the comparison between Samaria and Jerusalem. Not the way Qumran reads it. When Qumran sees the high place of Judah being Jerusalem, what they mean is the teacher of righteousness who leads this desert cult being in charge and him and his people they're the real Jerusalem even though they don't live near Jerusalem they live in Qumran and they're they're not actually doing anything which God would say would result in a vineyard this goes again like we covered last week beyond eisegesis because eisegesis is where you insert something into the text that is not there this is now just lying about the text there is literally nothing in that verse which would suggest that it's actually about the teacher of righteousness, quote-unquote, and his desert cult out there in Qumran. You're just lying. You're not interpreting. You're not going into the original languages. It's not there in the Greek. It's not in Aramaic or Hebrew. There is literally nothing in this verse to suggest that Jerusalem is actually the Qumran community that is, quote-unquote, joining themselves to the elect for judgment day under the quote-unquote teacher of righteousness. It's just lying. This individual was a cult leader lying to people who followed him. And I'm sure he had all sorts of fun ways to justify it, claiming that he had a special super-duper secret insight into what the text was saying, but at the end of the day, it's just lying. He's lying to people. We continue on with their commentary on Nahum here, uh, from Nahum chapter 1 verse 3. In whirlwind and storm is his way, and cloud is the dust of his feet. Its interpretation, dot, 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 the whirlwinds and the storms are from the firmaments of his heaven and of his earth which he has created. That's not necessarily what the verse is saying, but I, I guess if you're trying to explain where the dust comes from, maybe... He rebukes the sea and dries it up, chapter 1, verse 4. Its interpretation, the sea is all the Kittim who are, dot, 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 to execute judgment against them and destroy them from the face of the earth, together with all their commanders whose dominion shall be finished. Now, to be fair to Qumran, even though, yes, this is yet another instance of them reading their eschatological interpretation into literally everything, it is true that there is often a comparison, sometimes made in the Bible, between the Gentiles as the seas or the waters, since there's so stinking many of them, and the chosen people who reside in the tiny plateau of land that is Israel. However, if you actually look at the verse and its preceding part, his way, the Lord's way, is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet, he rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. This is a discussion on the power of God over all of nature. 
It's not talking about symbolic words for Gentiles and Jews, especially since, well, Nahum here gets really explicit in his book on the judgment against Nineveh. He doesn't need symbolic language and feels no need to guard some sort of secret understanding of which group of Gentiles is going to die. He's just talking about judgment against Assyria. There you go. He doesn't need that, so this is not what that verse means. Continuing on, though, from chapter 1, verse 4, Bashan and Carmel have withered and the sprout of Lebanon withers. Its interpretation, dot, 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 will perish in it, the summit of wickedness for the dot, 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 Carmel and to his commanders. Lebanon and the sprout of Lebanon are the priests, the sons of Zadok and the men of their council, and they shall perish from before the elect, dot, 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 all the inhabitants of the world. I have no idea what they mean by that. There's nothing in the verse that says, hey, this is actually the wicked priests in Carmel. That's really not what Nahum is getting about in context of the entirety of the book. Let me give you an example here of how Nahum writes in chapter 1 verse 15, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Hmm, well, okay, this is... Nahum telling Judah, keep going, keep obeying the law. He is addressing people contemporary to himself, not addressing people in the first century BC and first century AD who hate the Zadokite priests. But we continue on. From chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, The mountains quake before him, and the hills heave, and the earth is lifted up before him, and the world and all that dwell in it. Who can stand before his wrath, and who can arise against his furious anger? It's interpretation dot dot dot. Sorry, I know that you were expecting something cool or scandalous here, but um, there's just nothing there. Where is the lion's den and the cave of the young lions? Chapter 2, verse 11. Interpreted this concerns dot dot dot, a dwelling place for the ungodly of the nations. Really? Did they not have the entirety of Nahum chapter 2? Where he says here in verse 8, Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Oh wow, he just up and tells us he's talking about Nineveh. Not all the Gentiles, he's talking about the Assyrian capital. Hmm, really makes you think that either they had the Bible in fragments here and they're just taking wild guesses, or they didn't care what the text actually says. Now, continuing on though, it gets worse, guys. Whither the lion goes, there is the lion's cub with none to disturb it. Chapter 2, verse 11b. Interpreted, this concerns the Demetrius, king of Greece, who sought on the counsel of those who seek smooth things to enter Jerusalem. But God did not permit the city to be delivered into the hands of the kings of Greece from the time of Antiochus until the coming of the rulers of the Kittim. But then she shall be trampled under their feet, dot, dot, dot. Now, Nahum, we just read, tells us that this passage is about Nineveh. It's about the Assyrians. They want it to be about the Greeks, so they can say the Greeks' successors, the Kittim, probably a handy term for the Romans here, that that's what it's really about. These are people desperate, desperate, I tell you, for some sort of final cathartic murder fest against the Romans. They are willing to say, Nahum lied to you 
or used code in order to get what they want. It's going to be way worse, by the way, when we cover Habakkuk. But continuing on here, the lion tears enough for its cubs and chokes its prey for its lionesses, chapter 2, verse 12, interpreted this concerns the furious young lion who strikes by means of his great men and by means of the men of his council. Okay, whatever. And chokes prey for its lionesses, and it fills its caves with prey and its dens with victims. Chapter 2, verse 12. Interpreted, this concerns the furious young lion who executes revenge on those who seek smooth things and hangs men alive, dot, 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 formerly in Israel. Because of a man hanged alive on the tree, he proclaims, Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. Now by hanging alive, they are probably referring to the Romans' habit of crucifying people as a method of execution. See, the, the thing about crucifixion is our Lord Jesus, yes, he was crucified on a cross for our sins. The Romans crucified other people. They really liked doing that. Crucifixion is a terrible and painful way to die. So if you want a big fat message that says don't mess with the Romans, all you got to do is line the roads with people dying from crucifixion. That sends the big, broad message, and in Judea and in the Israelite areas at that time, that was referred to as a form of hanging, because just like hanging somebody with a noose, it asphyxiates you. That is how you die when you are crucified. You asphyxiate to death. Continuing on, though. I will burn up your multitude in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth. Chapter 2, verse 13. Interpreted, dot, 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 your multitude is the bands of his army, dot, 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 and his young lions are, dot, dot, dot. His prey is the wealth which the priests of Jerusalem have amassed, which, dot, 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 Israel shall be delivered. Uh, nothing in the passage says that the priests in Jerusalem, whom the Qumran community hated, are involved here. Obviously, nothing in the passage says that. But they hate those guys too, so they're saying this must be one of the lions. And the voice of your messengers shall no more be heard. Chapter 2.13. Interpreted. His messengers are his envoys whose voice shall no more be heard among the nations. Woe to the city of blood, it is full of lies and rapine. Chapter 3, verse 1. Interpreted. This is the city of Ephraim, those who seek smooth things during the last days, who walk in lies and falsehood. Again, Nahum doesn't say that. He calls out Nineveh by name, and the description of it as the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey, the crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end, they stumble over the bodies. That applied to Nineveh a heck of a lot more than Samaria. It really does. The Assyrians were a brutal people that would flay you alive and use your skin as a flag as a warning. The Romans liked to crucify people and put their crosses up on the roads as a warning to people. And in Assyria, they would have human skin flags as a warning to people. Don't mess with Assyria. We will do this to you. They were a bloody people. But here, because they hate Ephraim, they hate the Samaritans, they want to say, um, no, no, city of blood is Ephraim. Duh. Duh. I mean, have you even learned how to Bible code yet, brah? 
They continue, the prowler is not wanting noise of whip and noise of rattling wheel, prancing horse and jolting chariot, charging horsemen, flame and glittering spear, a multitude of the slain and a heap of carcasses. There is no end to the corpses. They stumble upon their corpses. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Interpreted, this concerns the dominion of those who seek smooth things from the midst of those whose assembly the sword of the nations shall never be wanting. Captivity, looting, and burning shall be among them in exile out of dread for the enemy. A multitude of guilty corpses shall fall in their days, and there shall be no end to the sum of their slain. They shall also stumble upon their body of flesh because of their guilty counsel. Again, not what the text is saying, but they really want to apply this in an almost conspiratorial fashion like the Samaritans out in Samaria, or Ephraim, we're secretly running some sort of multinational conspiracy to destroy and do evil. We continue on. Because of the many harlotries of the well-favored harlot, the mistress of seduction, she who sells nations through her harlotries and families through her seductions, chapter 3, verse 4, interpreted this concerns those who lead Ephraim astray, who lead many astray through their false teaching, their lying tongue and deceitful lips, kings, princes, priests, and people, together with the stranger who joins them. Cities and families shall perish through their counsel. Honorable men and rulers shall fall through their tongue's decision. Well, maybe. A harlot is a seductress, but what is spiritual adultery in God's language in the scripture? Well, it's idolatry, and Assyria was a home of idolatry. Lots and lots and lots of idolatry, and also to go to another nation for support instead of trusting in God was seen as an act of harlotry. Maybe they have a point with Ephraim, but they would also have the same point with Judah. We continue reading. Behold, I am against you, oracle of the Lord of hosts, and you will lift up your skirts to your face and expose your nakedness to the nations and your shame to the kingdoms. Chapter 3, verse 5. Interpreted dot dot dot. Cities of the east, for the skirts are dot dot dot, and the nations shall dot 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 among them their filthy idols. Very confusing, unfortunately, it's fragmentary. We continue on. I will cast filth upon you and treat you with contempt and render you despicable, so that all who look upon you shall flee from you. Interpreted, this concerns those who seek smooth things, whose evil deeds shall be uncovered to all Israel at the end of time. Many shall understand their iniquity and treat them with contempt because of their guilty presumption. When the glory of Judah shall arise, the simple of Ephraim shall flee from their assembly. They shall abandon those who lead them astray and shall join Israel. Wow. One we go, one we go all, I guess. But Qumran version? Oh yeah, one day, glory of Judah is going to rise up. And since we're trusting this plan... That's when all the fools are going to be out there. We're going to expose all the bad stuff and all the, the simpletons are going to join us because of how righteous we are. Really makes it think. They shall say Nineveh is laid waste. Who shall grieve over her? Whence shall I seek comforters for you? Chapter 3, verse 7. Interpreted, this concerns those who seek smooth things, whose counsel shall perish and whose congregation shall be dispersed. They shall lead the assembly astray no more and the simple shall support their counsel no more. Um... Nineveh is mentioned by name. It really is. It's it's not Nahum being secretive here. It's Nineveh. I know I'm hammering on this point, but half the time the scriptures tell you how to read them. They are incredibly plain. There is a perspicuity of scripture that says you don't have to go after allegorical and secret meanings for your interpretations at all. 
you don't need to do that. But here they are saying um, it's about people that seek smooth things. Now, what does that mean? In Isaiah chapter 30, verse 10, people who want to be led astray say, give us smooth things. Give us smooth interpretations from these false prophets. Qumran is saying these people who are seeking smooth things are these rubes out there who don't really want what the Bible truly, secretly, allegorically says. Uh, these are people who want to be deceived the same way as it was back in Isaiah's day. That's really what they're getting at here. So people who seek smooth things are condemned. And they would say to me, if they were alive today, that I am one of those people because I want to hear what the Bible says, not what Qumran says it says. But we continue on. Are you better than Ammon which lay among the rivers? Chapter 3, verse 8. Interpreted, Ammon is Manasseh, and the rivers are the great men of Manasseh, the honorable men of dot, dot, dot. No, it's not Ammon, is Ammon. Assyria presumed to be better than Ammon, which had been extinguished, destroyed. That's what the passage says. Which was surrounded by waters, whose rampart was the sea, and whose walls were waters. Chapter 3, verse 8. Interpreted, these are her valiant men, her almighty warriors. Ethiopia and Egypt were her limitless strength. Chapter 3, verse 9. Interpreted, dot, dot, dot. Sorry, guys. Put in the Libyans were your helpers. Chapter 3, verse 9. Interpreted, these are the wicked of Judah, the house of separation, who joined Manasseh. And it continues on, chapter 3, verse 10. Yet she was exiled, she went into captivity, her children were crushed at the top of all the streets. They cast lots for her honorable men, and all her great men were bound with chains, chapter 3, verse 10. Interpreted, this concerns Manasseh in the final age, whose kingdom shall be brought low by Israel, dot, dot, dot. His wives, his children, and his little ones shall go into captivity. His mighty men and honorable men shall perish by the sword. You shall be drunk and shall be stupefied, chapter 3, verse 11. Interpreted, this concerns the wicked of Ephraim, whose cup shall come after Manasseh. You shall also seek refuge in this city because of the enemy, chapter 3, verse 11. Interpreted, this concerns, dot, 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 their enemies in this city. And finally, we have, all your strongholds shall be like fig trees with newly ripe figs, chapter 3, verse 12, and no commentary. Why do they keep bringing up Manasseh? Well, even though Nahum actually just goes out and says, your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria, your nobles slumber, your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them, etc. and so forth. They are saying, well, no, this is a Manasseh figure. They could mean the half-tribe of Manasseh, but that is unlikely. Chances are they're talking about the person of Manasseh, the king of Judah that bathed the land in blood. They want to say that the false political rulers over Judah in their day were people who bathed the land in blood, much like Manasseh, king of Judah. And he has his own mighty men. He has his own wives and daughters, and they're all going to go into captivity and then judgment against their allies. What is this all telling us, though? This is telling us through these commentaries that Qumran favored secret interpretations of Holy Scripture, secret applications, secret messages and allegories, which mean that the scriptures are always going to apply to certain things. Rather than reading it in its historical context, they want to say that the Word of God is alive in a different way than the rest of the Bible would say the Bible is alive. Now, this is a trick a lot of people have been pulling for a very long time. Qumran is not alone in being guilty of this kind of trick. 
The church for a very long time had the allegorical method of interpretation where they would look at a passage of the scriptures and say, hmm, you know, I really want this verse to say something, but it's not saying it enough for me. Well, there's the plain layer, what the Bible is saying plainly here, but there's got to be something deeper in there that says what I want it to say. Ah, I am going to say that there is a secret meaning underneath that. In fact, there's like four different layers of meaning underneath that that'll show me exactly what's going on here. Yes, that's what I'll do. I'll read the plain meaning, the allegorical meaning, the super secret ethical meaning, and then the eschatological meaning. Every single passage of the Bible will do that, so it'll say what I want it to say. I mean, so it'll give me the true and secret meaning of it. Oh, so many different groups have been guilty of this in the past. It's just that Qumran, this is like the most inexcusable of them. When Origen claimed that the Trinity was demonstrated by Herod slaughtering children, because he said, well, you know, Herod killed children that were one year old. Herod killed children that were two years old, but he didn't kill children that were three. Therefore, this is part of the secret meaning of that passage that you get to heaven believing in three persons of the Trinity, not two or one. Origen said weird stuff like that in his allegorical interpretations. Oh yes, it got bad, but it's never been this bad. It's never been this bad as Qumran saying one group is actually another group which is actually a person that I hate, which is actually a dude that will say is a guy from the past, but we won't say his name. So the passage represents something else in a different group entirely, but it's actually a person that actually represents the person that we hate and want to die. How many layers of allegory and metaphor are you on, my dude? It's never been this bad even though it has gotten very, very, very bad in church history and, well, a certain precedent set by the rabbinic pardes system of interpretation, which includes a lot of this allegorical stuff as a precedent. A lot of the church fathers were following the wrong kind of guys for their exegesis. But that's a talk for another day. Next week, we will get into more of their minor prophets' works on Habakkuk, and then the Psalms, and Malachi, and we will eventually start getting to their weird theological treatises on like the heavenly prince of Melchizedek or whatever. We will start seeing that next week, but for this week we're just highlighting how they loved them some allegory to force the Bible to say what it didn't say. A group of ugly liars. Amen and amen.